I can't tell you how glad I am to be here this morning. I must admit I'm a little worn out, but the opportunity to brag about Jesus is always revitalizing and exciting. Amen? I uh, bring you congratulations from the executive board of the IFCA on 25 years of effective and successful ministry, reaching out both in Roseville and the surrounding area, touching the lives of individuals with the glorious gospel, dispelling the darkness and bringing life to bear upon the lives of those that are lost. What a privilege. Also grateful for the leadership uh, that God has raised up in this body, uh, specifically your pastor and his family, and then those that have encircled him and held up his hands and worked together with him these many years. Nobody builds the kingdom by themselves. We work together with the Lord and those whom God has raised up. So congratulations, that's wonderful. But don't sit back and think you've arrived. You've got a ways to go. You've got a beautiful facility. Congratulations on this marvelous renovation and all of the things that you have accomplished. But we're believing that soon, maybe within the next 25 years, you're going to have to build a new facility because this won't be big enough to take care of the people that have been embraced in the kingdom of God. God is about, by the way, You know, a lot of people always say, you know, it's not all about numbers, and which it isn't. But amazingly, we cannot ignore the fact that God cares about numbers, because it is He by inspiration that recorded the 3,000s and the 5,000s, and so on, that were added to the kingdom. And uh, so I must say that this is part and parcel of what it means to be able to fulfill the will and purpose of God. You have a rich legacy. You see, the gospel has been passed on over the eons, over the ages, and finally came to rest right here over this last 25 years as you have lived it out, you've been passing it on to others, reduplicating the reality of the gospel. And over the next 25 years, you're going to have to do the same in a more concerted effort to touch the lives of individuals and to see that God gives you the wonderful privilege of transferring the concepts that He has laid in your hearts and that you have learned by intimacy with Him to pass it on to others. Remember, this gospel is not how we look. It is not really about how spiritual we seem. It's everything about who we are, the reality of what God accomplishes by the gospel in our lives. And believe me, you cannot come in contact with the light and remain in the darkness. It is by the reality of the light, of the life that flows from Christ. Remember what verse 4 says in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. God's glorious light in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, dispels the darkness and brings life and immortality to light. So, let's have a look at what the text says. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
and we begin in verse 3. And Paul says, I give thanks unto God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. Pure conscience, sorry, not conscious, pure conscience. That without ceasing, I make mention of you in my prayers night and day. Greatly desiring to see you, mindful of your tears, that I might be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us, listen, the spirit of fear. Not a spirit of fear. I hear some people quoting that scripture, a spirit of fear. There's no ah there. He did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but instead be partakers of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Woo, when I think of that, imagine. Not according to our works. Our works doesn't just mean the things that we do, but not because we are talented, we can play piano, we can preach, we can do all kinds of good stuff. Not according to our works, but listen, but according to his own purpose and grace which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest listen by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel unto which I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this cause, I endure afflictions. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why? Because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now I realize there's a lot of verses there, and you're saying, whoo, is he going to preach all this? I'd like to, but I'll probably just do the few, a few verses until we run out of time, and then we'll take up at the next service and look at the balance of it. But I want you to realize, this is very important. I want you to think about this. Second Timothy, in all intents and purposes, most commentators that I've read and studied, is the last letter, the last epistle written by the Apostle Paul. 
and he is writing it to what he considers to be his son in the faith. Look at the kind of phrases he uses. To Timothy, my beloved son, to whom I long to see. Uh, remembering his tears. Can you imagine uh, that one would remember the tears that you have shed for the gospel and the fulfillment of what you have to accomplish in Christ? Again and again saying how desperate. It's clear by the wording by how Paul approaches that he really loves Timothy. And he has a deep desire to encourage him and to speak into his life. Now, they call these epistles... First and Second Timothy and Titus, they call them the pastoral epistles. But really it's a misnomer because Titus and Timothy are not pastors. They are part of Paul's apostolic team. And Paul was traveling on his way to Macedonia, and as it was his habit to do, he passed through the church at Ephesus, because after all, he had founded it, he was involved in that church, and the church in Crete, and when he got to Ephesus, he was disgusted to find that heretics had infiltrated the church, and many of the leaders were teaching heresy. Now, I don't want to take the time to talk about the heresies, it'll take too long, but there was all kinds of uh, different heresies that had arisen that they were teaching. Docetism was one of them. Adoptionism was another. They constantly, uh, many of them were preaching what one would call a realized a theology of resurrection. The resurrection has already taken place, they said. And it was all about spiritual reality. And not the fact that the baptism, the power of the Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, as a down payment, that we are going to get the rest when it all comes to fruition. Amen. And so they had this weird concepts and weird stuff going on. So when Paul got there, he realized he had a calling, a direction to go to Macedonia. He had to do something to sort out the problems in Ephesus. So he left Timothy there, to sort out the problems. Across the sea at Crete, he found out that the whole church was in a mess because the majority of the members were not people of integrity. I mean, they didn't mind lying and stealing and doing all kinds of things. I mean, uh, you know, if, if somebody wants to sort of give you a handle that explains that you're not a person of integrity and nice, they will call you a Cretan. And so, Titus was sent over there to go and sort that church out. Titus was a very strong and forceful personality, but Timothy tended to be a little timid. In fact, you'll see in the wording, if you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you'll see some of the things that Paul says to him, you know, don't let them despise your youth and stuff like that. He was younger. By the way, Paul had fulfilled over 30 years of ministry in Asia Minor and Europe, and Timothy had been with him for at least 15 of those years. So this is almost what you might call Paul's last will and testament, that he's writing not just to Timothy, but to the church as a whole. And uh, we need to take it very seriously, because it brings us to the place of exhortation and realizing that God has a plan and a purpose and we are all part of it. There are no 
members in the body of Christ. We are all called and anointed and placed specifically within a body, within a city, within a town, whatever it might be, to fulfill. Notice, we have been called according to his own purpose. His, not ours. I know we've got agendas and, you know, we get carried away and we think it's all about us and, you know, it's all centered around us, but you're wrong. I want you to know, every single one of us has been called by God. I'm, I can't help but think back to John chapter 15 and verse 16, where Jesus says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Fruit that will last or remain or endure or continue. Our Lord is not a fly-by-night. He has specific purposes in every one of our lives. So let me remind you, remember what Paul is doing. He realizes that Timothy has been struggling with timidity. And uh, now I don't know all the features of Timothy's life because there, there isn't much information really within the text. You take from what the writer is saying and you sort of put two and two together and try to figure it out. But there was a timidity in him. Now that word that is translated, he hasn't given us the spirit of fear. That word is an amazing word. I'm going to be jumping back and forth between these two verses, or these few verses, but you'll understand. It comes from the word in the Greek, delias. It is only used here in the entire New Testament. Only here. They translated it fear. But it really means fear timidity, or the real meaning, cowardice. God did not give us the spirit of cowardice, but rather he gave us, and it doesn't say the spirit, but it's clear by implication, I have given you the spirit of power and of love and of a sound I don't know where all these kooks come from, but many churches are full of people who are not too sound of mind. In fact, Paul encourages us to pray for the feeble-minded. But honestly and truthfully, it is vitally important that we realize that God has called us to balance we have such imbalances many times. We're over way over in the left field somewhere or way over in the right. But where's the middle road? Do you know we Pentecostals have come to hate the word moderation because we feel somehow it's a worldly secular word. But in truth, the whole context of a sound mind deals with moderation, how that we live our lives on the center line where God has called us. But notice what he said. He said, listen, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. He's wanting to encourage Timothy and to show him the legacy that he has got. The rich inheritance that he has because obviously Timothy somehow has been intimidated by how difficult the task has been at Ephesus. 
And so he says, I serve God from my forefathers. My forefathers passed this down. They were men and women of faith. I inherited it from them. Oh no, one of the commentators says. But that's Old Testament covenant. I don't know how it applies to this. It's still faith and confidence in God. They were people in the covenant like Abraham and others that had their faith and confidence in God and God would not fail them or let them down and Paul had inherited that and he was serving God notice what he said with a pure conscience do you know what one of the biggest hindrances to our spiritual vitality is consciences that have been seared that are filled with issues other than a surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot effectively serve God and be what God has called us to be if we don't have a pure conscience. We cannot witness effectively without a pure conscience. We cannot pray effectively without a pure conscience. We cannot deliver the word effectively if our conscience is not pure. Because in the background, constantly we are being reminded of the issues that we are still battling with. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about perfection. Paul is not saying, look at me, I'm a perfect example of everything that is holy and righteous. What he is saying is that I have a pure conscience that flowed out of the faith that has been handed down to me by my forefathers. Now, he brings it to Timothy. He says, I want you to know, Timothy, I am really greatly desiring to see you. I realize the tears. Now, you know, tears are very important to God. Did you know that the Word tells us that God keeps our tears in a bottle? Now, maybe you don't understand exactly what that's like. I know your pastor's a sharp guy, and he's probably told you most of these things, but I'm just reminding you, that's all. But do you know that in those days, they couldn't all make it to a funeral that was 80 or 100 miles away. It would take them five or six days to travel that. So what they would do, they had little bottles, specially prepared. And they would weep and catch their tears in that bottle. And then they would fill it up and send it with a messenger to the people that had been bereaved. And when they saw those tears they identified with the deep concern that those people had for them. Greatly desiring to see thee, mindful of thy tears, that my joy might be for all, that I might be filled with joy, is the way it says it. Now, by the way, in the Greek text, there is no punctuation after that. That I might be filled with joy when I recall your unfeigned faith. What is this unfeigned? We don't use that word anymore. Oh, brother, I'm so glad to see your unfeigned faith. You'll spend the next five days trying to figure out what the unfeigned faith was about, unless you have access to Google and can check it out. <laughs> what does unfeigned mean? It means faith that is genuine, that is real, that is not contrived. That is not somehow faked. I mean, isn't it amazing how many people over the ages have faked 
their faith. But he says, I want to be filled with joy. Oh, the joy unspeakable and full of glory when I recall your unfeigned faith. Now notice what he said. The unfeigned faith that is in you. He didn't say that could be in you, that may be in you, that I think is in you. He said, no, I will be rejoicing, I'll be filled with joy when I recall the unfeigned faith that is in you. What is he doing? Reminding Timothy, you're a man of faith to me. What you've accomplished, where you've gotten to, is because of the real, genuine, uncontrived faith that dominates your being. But just you, in case you forgot, I want to remind you that it first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, convinced, I know that I know that I know, I am 100% persuaded that this unfeigned faith dwells in you also. Man, I tell you, if that isn't exciting, if that doesn't get your motor running, I mean your gas tank is empty. (laughs) Oh, God wants us to know. Paul wants us to know leadership is like that. Leadership sees people going through hardships and difficulties, becoming discouraged and depressed, and they come alongside and say, come on, remember the deposit that God has placed in your life. It's real, deep, intimate, glorious. It never passes away. I want you to know, you have to make sure that you keep that a priority in your life. Too many times we sail by the seat of our pants or by the smell of an oil rag, hoping that somehow we're just going to sort of skim by. It doesn't happen like that. Oh, but I'm struggling. I'm going through so many hardships. Join the club! I'm sorry to disappoint you. Jesus didn't call us to a bed of roses. Jesus didn't call us to easy times. He said, blessed are you when men shall revile you. When they shall say all kinds of lies about you. When they will persecute you for my sake. But I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be blessed. Because they did the same to the prophets that existed before. And they have done it unto me. In John 15 verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, don't be dismayed. Remember, they hated me first. If Paul does anything very clearly here, he tells us, We're not in for easy times. But we have a wonderful consolation. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord. God has made provision 
by the power of the Spirit, God is with us. He never forsakes us. I want you to know, no matter how bad it feels, no matter how you struggle to make contact with God, how it seems that somehow the ceiling has become bronze, it is not, and His presence is real, and He never fails. He said, Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Now, did you notice? It didn't say bring your life to the Holy Spirit and the Father will stir up. No, no. It is an imperative command given to the believer himself. You, stir up. It is a commandment. You must stir up the gift of God that is in you. Well, of course, the commentators, depending if they are cessationists or Calvinists, as they write about this now, they don't want us to think it's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. So they prefer for us to think about what 1 Timothy 4.14 is talking about, that there's some sort of gift that God has given for us to fulfill ministry. Well, they're right about fulfilling ministry. You can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. But the fact is very clear. The very next verse tells us what that gift is because it says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. It's the Holy Spirit he's talking about. Yeah, but how does it come about by the laying of hands, by the putting on of hands? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. You see, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said this, When the men who were convicted and they realized that Jesus had been made Lord and Savior, they said, Sirs, what must we do? And Peter said this, he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, I like that. Uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit for every believer. What happened in Acts chapter 8 verse 17? When uh, Philip was having a great revival in Samaria and souls were being added to the kingdom and he realized something was missing. And he sent to the church in Jerusalem and they sent Peter and John. What did they do? The text, check it out for yourself, Acts 8, 17 says, they laid hands on those who were saved and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, verse 17. The Apostle Paul, after his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the street called Straight. And Ananias is sent to pray for him. And I, this is what the text says. That Ananias laid his hands on Paul, and that which blinded him fell like scales away from his eyes, and he was filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Acts chapter 19, just in case you're still doubting. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Paul gets to the church at Ephesus. What does he find? That there are 12 disciples who have never heard about the Holy Spirit. They were disciples of John. He asked them what they were baptized when they said with the baptism of John. He said, no, you must let me rebaptize you. And he baptized 
baptized them in the name of Jesus. And then the text says he laid hands on them and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, just in case you wanted to develop a doctrine and say, you can't have the Holy Ghost unless the senior pastor or some apostle or some deacon or whatever lays their hands upon you. That's the only way to receive. I didn't say that and the text doesn't say that. Just in case you said the general overseer said so. No, I didn't. What I'm trying to tell you is that there were occasions in the scripture when this is how the Holy Spirit was imparted. And so I believe with all of my heart that's exactly what happened to Timothy. God, when Paul laid hands on him at his ordination probably, he received the gift of the Holy Spirit and his life was empowered. Pastor, what time do I have to finish? Pretty close. 20 after. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> God did not give us a spirit of cowardice. Cowardice. And don't sit there looking so innocent. Some of you are cowards. You've never spoken to anybody about Jesus, you're chicken. Oh, wait a minute, preacher, you're being odd. No, I'm being realistic. I've been around for a long time. And I know even the fear that comes up in my heart when I oftentimes have to confront people that hate God and they call themselves atheists. (laughs) What a misnomer. How can you say You do not believe in God when that statement, even in the negative, means that there has to be a God that I'm not believing in. (laughs) Stupid, aren't we? There's none so stupid as those that will not see, no matter how you hold it in front of them. Because their minds are darkened by sin and wickedness. But oh, I don't take joy in that. I take joy in the fact that God opens the eyes of the blind and sheds the light. Because I was there in darkness and the stupid of stupid. That was me. And Jesus lifted me out of the gutters and gave me life. And life more abundantly. Listen, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. You see, our problem is we think we have to do it. If you think so, you're never going to accomplish anything, ever. It's not by our ability. We don't have to think about what we're going to say. Let me go home quickly and memorize the Bible. You know, let me have a theology course or two so I know what I'm talking about. All that stuff doesn't matter. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not important, but you don't need that all. All you need is a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. You know, I know Brother Tim fairly well. But if somebody said, do you really know him? No. I don't know what motivates him. I know some things. I know about his vision. and but I don't really know him. But if he and I went on a mission together and we spent a month or two or three together, we'd get to know each other. And if we still loved each other when we got back, you know it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Yeah.
If somebody came to me and said, do you know Tim Tyler? I said, of course I do. Could you introduce me to him? Yes, sir. Do I know everything about him? No. But if I brought you up to him and I said, hi, brother Tim Tim, would say, hey, brother Mike. I said, this dude wants to meet you. It's no different with Jesus. (laughs) You don't have to know all the Bible. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be a theologian. You just got to know him so that you can say to somebody, this God I have an intimate relationship with and I'm not afraid to introduce you to him because he'll change your life forever. Hallelujah! God did not give us a spirit of cowardice. The text used the word fear. But notice, he gave us a spirit of power. Power. What is this power all about? Just look at me, you know. The battle cry of the Zulu people of the ANC in South Africa during the uprising against apartheid was Amanda. What they're talking about is black power. <laughs> That's not the power Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something far greater than that. The word dunameos or dunamis that is translated power there talks about enablement. The power to do, to fulfill. The power to be effective. Now let me tell you something. He gives us power to fulfill his will and purpose and to endure hardship, to go through trials and tribulations, to be able to persevere and endure even when the wheels are coming off. If we took the time to look at how many biblical examples there are, where do you think kept Job going? (laughs) Oh, I want you to know God has given us a spirit of power, of ability, of enablement. He has given us commission, and he has given us the ability to do the impossible. Oh, God loves to hear those words. It's impossible, because he can do the impossible. Oh, I don't have enough. All of us are without the resources, but our God is not limited. He has everything, and he has given us power, power. Secondly, he has given us a spirit of love. Ooh, and we've got some weird ideas about love. Just love everybody, you know. But, uh, and love is very, very important. Do you remember what John said? 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love casts out what? All. all. No, no. Not some. Not certain circumstances, but all. Fear. God has given us a spirit of power, which takes care of fear. And he's given us love, just in case the power didn't take care of it. I want to remind you that you've also got the power of love. And the power of love takes care of all fear. Do you know what Romans 5 says? I like this. He says, 
We verse three. We glory in our tribulation because tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope never disappoints because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. How can I love? You're right. You can't. But by the power of the Spirit, you can love the unlovable. God has enabled you. You can overcome fear. And then just to make it 100% Trinitarian fullness of reality, He has given us the spirit of a sound mind. Now what an amazing word, that sound mind. By the way, it is only used also just one time here in the New Testament. Sound mind. A disciplined life. A disciplined mindset. A life that is under self-control. Self-discipline. That's what he's given us. You overcome fear by a sound mind. Now listen to me. Do you know where the majority of the attacks of Satan take place in our lives? In the mind. If you've never read Tim LaHaye's book, The Battle for the Mind, it might be instructive to read that. It was written a while back, but it's still the reality. Each person that comes along, this is where the devil attacks us. Notice what Paul said, Romans 12. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Here it is, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Let me tell you, the mind, fears, yeah. We think about the service coming up, the mind is going. I don't know about you, but you know, all night long, the mind is rolling over. Now, if it's the word, it will play on your mind, as it does with me. Sometimes, instead of getting six hours sleep, I only get three hours because I can't get the word shut down. I can't shut down my mind. But through thinking, we exacerbate the fears that are in our lives. But God wants us to have self-disciplined control over our minds, over the things that we think about, over the thoughts that we develop. There's no sin in having untoward thoughts just suddenly enter into your mind, but when you begin to develop them, that's where the problem is. And then fear will take over our being. Now, okay, my time's gone. Stir up. Stir up. What does it mean, stir up? Uh, Fan the flame. Fan the flame. Listen, I want you to know, if you don't practice the Holy Spirit, it becomes dormant. Our problem is, don't get me wrong, He doesn't depart from our lives, but it can happen because if we continue, notice the wording that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, talking about the Spirit. Quench, not the Spirit. Quench has to do with fire. In Acts chapter 2, what's in verse 3, what does it say? That there sat upon each one of them flames of cloven fire. The baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit, fire. Stir up, set it to flame, uh, fan the flame, uh, uh, kindle the fire, do what you need. How do you do that? Prayer, Bible study, 
fellowship, attendance in the church services, witnessing, all kinds of things that we're doing when we do it, and allowing the Spirit to take control over our circumstances. Because what often happens is the Spirit prompts us, and we ignore it. We quench it. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians tells us. I want you to know that God wants you to stir up, operate in the power of the Spirit, and He will bless you. God wants to bless you. He wants to make the next 25 years victorious and wonderful and glorious. Father, in the name of Jesus, I commit the word into your hands, that which I have shared. I pray by the power of the Spirit that you will speak to our hearts and encourage us to do what Paul encouraged Timothy to do. That we will stir up and that we will realize the power of the Spirit that resides in us to fulfill your will and purpose. Bless your people and draw us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.